Hello everyone, we said we would be back here to discuss the 2019 Sundance Film Festival with you all. I am here to do that this evening, but I am certainly not alone. Who am I, you may be asking right now? I am Matt Neglia, the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, and here to talk about the Sundance Film Festival with me, I have my co-host from the Next Best Picture podcast, Will Mavity. Hello, hello, hello. And we also have Robert Daniels. Yo. Jorge. Hi there. And also joining us for the first time ever on the Next Best Picture podcast, we also have Lisa Gullickson. That's great pronunciation. Hello, everyone. (laughs) All right. So uh, this is great. I mean, you know, everyone knows Will and I, buddies, uh, Robert and Jorge and I actually were roomies at this year's Sundance. And Lisa, I met you and your husband, Brad, actually in the uh, working press line for many showings uh, where we hit it off pretty well. And I was like, hey, come on the show. Talk about Sundance with us. And that's how we're all here today. Yay. (laughs) So there's a lot to dissect here. There's a lot to talk about. So many films. I mean, my God, so many films. Uh, But we're going to do our best to run through them as quickly as possible, let you all know what's worth seeing, what's worth skipping, and also what could possibly be an Oscar contender maybe even next year. Who knows? Uh, We're always looking to see what's right around the corner for us, and Sundance definitely gives us a peek into the future. Uh, With that said, the person here who has seen the most films out of all of us is... Sir Robert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 45 films. I don't even know how Whoa. you managed to do it. That is insane. The, the pink press pass. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all access, granted. Did you sleep or did you did you eat? Um, barely ate. I was with Matt and getting an average of about three hours of sleep a night. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can attest to that. <laughs> Uh, that's how I pretty much got sick and went stir crazy by the end. Uh, I think the lack of sleep just finally caught up with me. Uh, because you know what it is? Like, you're trying to cram in five movies a day, and then you say to yourself, oh, man, but there's just six movies showing at midnight. And it's like everything in your body says, no, don't do it. But your heart is like, yes, 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 yes. I want to do it. <laughs> so that's how you end up getting three hours or less uh, amounts of sleep any given evening at Sundance. But let's first start off with the opening night. Uh, Thursday night, first night of Sundance, uh, we actually had uh, the premieres of Native Son and After the Wedding uh, that evening. And on top of that, there were a few films that also pre-screened for some of us uh, before the festival officially started. So I want to talk about uh, those two films first and any films that anybody might have seen before the festival. Uh, Let's start off with anything that uh, comes out of that first. Apollo 11, man. Yo. Yes. My God. That that is a pretty impressive film. And... It uh, you know, it, it rightfully won best editing in a documentary at the closing night awards, and I honestly could see somebody like the L.A. film critics next year giving it their editing prize because we know how they adore giving that to Docs with Minding the Gap this year and O.J. Simpson a couple of years ago. It's a it's a undeniably impressive experience. It's not a narrative documentary in the traditional sense of the word, you know it. Just somebody shot a hundred hours of footage in 1969, and they have lovingly restored it and remastered it and edited it together to create a visceral experience of the days leading up to takeoff and the actual trip to the moon. 
you know, it's it's a lean 71 minutes long and just a very memorable experience. It truly has the feeling of you are really there, like the true immersive feeling that I think works perfectly as a companion piece to First Man. I think it was the just the absolute most respectful thing to do with that footage. I mean, that footage belongs to us. It belongs to the American people. And I love the fact that it was presented to us um, through the voices of the time with um, the news footage, um, getting to see the people all gathered together to, to see this historical event happen. I just thought it was just really moving. Well, I just was thinking about Apollo 11. Could it win one of those like technical Oscars next year because of the remastering and retouching? Well, like a special achievement Oscar? Yeah, those special achievement, like, um, yeah, something like it's that. It's possible, but I think it's getting released pretty soon. I don't know that it'll stick along around long enough to be remembered. It's uh, Neon's releasing it in March. Yeah. Yeah. So I, if they, if oh, it come the, out, those Oscars get those those Oscars get allocated by the Academy, right? Like, like by the, some technical branches. It's not like voting or anything like that. So I just thought that the remastering of this of the footage is so incredible. Like you actually think that they they just shot it anew. It's it's really good. Yeah, totally possible. I, I would love to see it happen. I think the film is worthy of a ton of uh, praise and uh, it, for its music, its editing, the the restoration. Like you said, mm-hmm. it's definitely going to be a highlight uh, of this year for sure. Uh, another, another documentary film though that I really really loved that I saw um, was Maiden uh, did anybody here get a chance to see that yeah um, I loved Maiden um, I think we talked about it that I, I compared it to a documentary version of Cool Runnings Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it literally has almost the same like arc and beats too of like this um, um, this outsider group in this case um, an all female sailing team um you know, competing and being taken as a joke. And then, you know, they get a couple wins under their belts and then they become serious contenders. It's a really rousing and emotional uh, doc that uh, had me in tears, honestly, by the end of it. And it's something that I think will be a definite crowd pleaser as the year goes on. I know Sony Pictures Classics has that film and uh, you could bet your ass they'll probably be campaigning it pretty hard. It's got a really, really good story uh, to it. Other than those two docs, those were the only two I got a chance to see before the festival. Did anybody else get a chance to see anything else before the festival? I got a chance to see Bedlam. Did anybody see Bedlam? No. (sighs) That was the film up until the very last day I was trying to get into my schedule. (laughs) It was absolutely so wonderful. What I like about it is that it was directed by Kenneth Paul Rosenberg, who, who has put out several films for HBO all about um, creating understanding for mental illness because he is also a psychologist. And when he was 14, his older sister was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So, so he understands the medium of filmmaking. He understands like the subject he's trying to tackle and he has a very emotional attachment to this message. So, so what this film does is it goes to the LA USC and it finds three people, all of which have of tough to manage, um, mental illness. And it follows them at different intervals from, from the day we see them in the, um, or, in um, the emergency room to a year later to two years later. Some people are living on the streets. Some people are bouncing in and out of their parents' home. 
All of them are emotionally up and down. And it goes into how through um, the the passing the football of um, institutions between the federal and the state government, it, it just got to the point where literally America just dropped the ball and three 3,500 citizens who would otherwise be in mental institutions are just out of luck. And a lot of them are on the streets. A lot of them are trying to live in their homes with their families and they're not getting the care that, that they need. And it's a really super emotional doc. Um, I think he, he really guides you to understanding exactly what the issue is while creating empathy through following these three different people. So, so it's, it was a really an amazing doc. Wow. Really cool. Uh, one other one I saw beforehand was the Mustang. Oh, you saw that early. Yeah. So the Mustang is the film itself is just all right. It's a story that has been done before, albeit with a little bit more grit than, you know, the man finds humanity through a horse trope has been done. You know, you see that in like Disney movies sometimes. <laughs> this is a grittier, more violent take on the story. But what really stands out is Matthias Schoenhartz is just stunning. He is either my favorite or second favorite lead male performance at Sundance. Just devastating. <laughs> Yeah, no, his performance really, really shook me in that. I have to say he has a couple of really, really good scenes where, you know, it's that it's that powerful, reserved performance that is very internalized. But uh, when he needs to be like an angry bruiser who's just like a hulking mass of rage, you know, he can really, really dial into that with such intensity and focus. I, I, I'm with you, Will. As far as like leading actor performances I saw at the festival this year, I would say he was very, very close or at the top for sure. Um, and is definitely uh, worth the price of admission of at least checking that movie out. Um Robert, Jorge, what, what did you guys think of the Mustang? I saw that one also in advance. I didn't love it as much as you guys did. I thought the story was too predictable. Um, it's it's like, oh, oh, you know, he's a violent man. He's going to find purpose and care for an animal. Um, I, I've kind of seen it before, but, but on the other hand, I appreciated the different emotional tone and the first-time um, director, uh, you know, obviously he's very talented. So it's, it's worth it. I just didn't necessarily love it as much as you guys seem to mm. well no no we didn't love the film we love the lead performance yeah yeah I, I would say the film itself is just average yeah i did not see the mustang the the other one i got was um a doc called um aquilera i did not even hear about that what is that um it is essentially a environmentalist documentary set in um God, i want to say denmark or something like that um or iceland um and it's it's basically on this like sheet of ice that's like slowly melting, but the soundtrack to it is metal music. That's awesome. <laughs> that's sounds super see, fun. You see, you'll see like you know ice breaking apart, and then like this heavy metal riff will come out <laughs> as the soundtrack is <laughs> breaking apart. <laughs> now it's it's funny for that reason, but it's also just like really disturbing because then you know it it actually kind of actualizes the enormity of these like big pieces of ice that have been there for like millions of years just breaking off and then turning asunder that sounds pretty awesome and pretty wild actually has that been picked up for distribution do you know 
Um, no, you know what? It might be I'm feeling it's Sony or Focus. I have to remember which Allied rep sent me it. I'll, I'll check it very quickly. All right. I also saw the um, Stieg Larsson one, um, which was interesting. Um, but, you know, it's missing a little bit of things that you might be interested in, such as, you know, how did he come up with Elizabeth Salander? Uh, and then I saw one called The Disappearance of My Mother, which I really liked. It's kind of about aging and beauty and life, and it's Italian, and it's a documentary, and I really like that one. I saw a lot of documentaries in advance. I saw one called Midnight Family about a family oh, that, that, was awesome. that Yeah, that one was, really, that that was really screwed up. Um, that won a, uh, a prize, right, at the uh, at the end of the awards, right? It got cinematography. Yeah. 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 And it, it, it's very cinematic. Yeah. It's, like it genuinely looks like a feature film. I'm talking about companion pieces. It's like almost like a companion piece to Roma because it takes place in the same neighborhood, but yeah. in modern day Mexico City. And, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of updates a lot of what's going on there and what's been going on there and class divisions and things like that through a real life story that's, that's very morally complicated. But like also uh, Nightcrawler. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It has just, it has something, I mean, and, and it's not as you think, I mean, it's not what you think it is from the beginning, just because there, there is a lot of moral ambiguity going on. So it leaves you kind of thinking and with a little bit of a bitter taste, uh, uh, but in a good cinematic way. One thing that's going to be a common uh, theme here throughout this recording is um, other than the two docs I've mentioned, Apollo 11 and Maiden, um, I stuck with narrative features uh, during my time in Sundance, and I did not see like any of these docs at all. And that's like, it, it feels criminal to me, uh, e like even to myself. Like I, I feel like I committed a crime because I know that the docs uh, last year and this year have just been knocking it out of the park at Sundance. And I feel like I've definitely robbed myself of something uh, not having caught as many as you all did. So I'm really, really glad to hear recommendations like that. Some of these will be up for best documentary. You know, they, oh, for sure. Like two or three Sundance docs always make it into the final five. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Um, yeah. Doing the homework in advance. Quick thing. Um, I found out um, Aqualera is through Sony. Okay. So we'll get a chance to see that heavy metal music. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Aquarella, Aquarella, right? Aquarella. Yeah. Like Barbarella? No, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, in any event, though, uh, so going back to uh, what I initially opened up with here, uh, Premiere Night, uh, they decided to do uh, two very similar theme films uh, to last year. Last year's Premiere Night was Private Life and Blind Spotting. This year we got After the Wedding and Native Son. Um, and yeah, why don't we just start off with those two first uh, really quick and let's... Uh, kind of set the tone for what it was like here in Park City on the opening night. Um, I could tell you right now, I was kind of underwhelmed by both of them, but I did also like both of them. I just didn't love, I just didn't love them as much as I had hoped to. I thought both Julianne Moore and Michelle Williams had amazing performances, particularly at the, the climax for Julianne Moore, just the amount of emotion she was able to bring up was stunning, but I think that there was like an underlying darkness of the narrative that I felt like just was not addressed in this film. The fact that like Michelle Williams is more or less like kidnapped and blackmailed and she just kind of take, uh, like you really never get to see anything from her perspective because there's this tremendous amount of sympathy for the Julianne Moore character. 
Yeah, like uh, one thing I'll echo about After the Wedding is that I think the four performances by Julianne Moore, Michelle Williams, like you said, uh, Billy Kudrup, and um, is it Abby Quinn is the yes. fourth one? Yeah. Fun fact, my sister was Abby Quinn's dr- drama teacher. What? Yeah, in Michigan. That's awesome. Well, she did a good job because Abby Quinn, I thought, was pretty good in this. Uh, But yeah, I think the movie's just all right. The performances, I think, are worth checking out if you're a fan of any one of those uh, four. And and one thing I will say about After the Wedding is, and I said this to uh, Jorge and Robert, I, I like adult dramas that ask adult questions and you see these adult dilemmas and issues that the, the, these people are trying to work through, uh, they're, they're handling it like adults, not because the movie calls for a dramatic climax or something like that. Like These actually feel like actual intelligent people trying to work through real-world problems and situations. And I, I, I enjoy seeing that on screen. I also like the fact that it's a remake, but the genders are reversed. So in the original film... The Michelle Williams and Julianne Moore characters were male. So for so one, this is not really a spoiler, but um, or is it? I don't know. There is one issue that I won't spoil, I guess, where it's very different for a woman than for a man. And you guys know what I'm talking about uh, with Michelle Williams's character, the, the big reveal. Yes. Yeah. Like that's very different for a woman than it is for a man. Uh, Native Son. Uh, I I think we were a little mixed on this one the first night. Uh, Robert, what did you think of Native Son? You know, I I keep switching back and forth. I was actually going to try to write a review of it, and I was like sitting down like earlier today. I was like, man, I don't know if I loved this movie or completely hated it. Um, <laughs> I mean, like visually, there's just some like stunning, stunning images in it. Um, especially uh, the Lee character when he's by the furnace, like the lighting in there is just so fantastic. Um, and the story itself, I mean, I think the problem is that the story gets a little bit like too convoluted and pulls a few too many punches. Well, I mean, Jorge and I were talking about this. There's a third act twist that we both were not a fan of. Yeah, it's just not believable. You know, they the, the story I thought to thematic. To, to, it's making an interesting point. It's kind of switching the, the you know, flipping the switch or, or turning the tables on the usual way in which movies that deal with race, race issues and class issues talk about these things. It's telling it from a different perspective and it's kind of turning a mirror on some of the audience that it has, but it resorts to uh, in plot and narrative leaps that are just kind of hard to fathom. And, and so it looks loses you a little bit. I, I get the point it's trying to make, and I think it's a good point. And actually, other movies at Sundance that I'm sure we'll talk about later, like Loose, may make the point better, but this movie resorts to a twist that most people will just find that, you know, just un- implausible, and that might take them out of it, as it took us a little bit out of it. One of the themes of the uh, festival, actually, was that A24 had a couple of movies that they actually ended up selling off, and Native Son was one of them that, when we got there opening night, a lot of people didn't know that it was an HBO film. So when the logo came up on the screen, A24, then HBO Films, like there was like a collective, like, oh, that, that I guess that happened, you know, and like it was like, wow, yeah, they announced it earlier today. A twenty four gave it to HBO, so Native Son will be seen uh, as an HBO movie and will be in contention, I guess, for the Emmys uh, next year. So I don't know, maybe that's a better place for it. Honestly, I think it might, I think it might work better that way. To tell you the truth, so 
Uh, sticking with uh, A24 for a minute here, uh, they also had a couple of other films at the festival as well, including two of, I would say, the biggest titles of the festival, two of the most talked about titles, and that was The Farewell and The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And I know that we all probably have thoughts on each one of these. And they have the souvenir, too. And they also have the souvenir, which I'm really sorry to say I do not lump in with the same category of those two because I <laughs> I was not a fan <laughs> of the souvenir. 22 walkouts in my screening. Yowza. That's one of those movies where I, like, I don't understand the praise. I just don't. I, I really don't. Uh, and so many people praise this movie, and I just don't. I don't get it. I mean, did anyone? Did anyone here? Robert, Jorge, Lisa, did, did either one of you understand the praise for this movie? I yeah, I could understand. I see the it. Sorry. Huh. I mean, I, I mean, stylistically and artistically, I mean that movie is fantastic. Like it's the the framing, the lighting. It's just. I mean, sure, fantastic. yeah, and but it's. It is a slow burn of a film, and I was very lukewarm on it. Um, but part of me wants to see it again outside of Sundance, outside of a <coughs> setting, outside of me having my head cranked up in the second row of a theater. <laughs> um, part, part, part of me wants to get that film one more chance, because I can see what makes it great and why people really, really latched onto that film. But then you know you put it in a five film day. It's it, that's not the best film. That's not the best film to be your fourth of a day, right? And that's uh, I think Brian Tlerico of you know I don't remember which outlet, but from Chicago said that uh, it is not a film that is designed for the tail end of a film festival. It's when you, it's something you need to see when you're awake and fresh because if it's day nine or ten, it's a tough one to get through. So I will be seeing it again you know, this summer or whenever it is released. It's like Green Book. No. (laughs) Great films in Toronto and you're like, oh my God. No, I I, I will admit that I definitely want to see it again um, because for me, it was that fourth film. I think I saw it around like 6 p.m. or something like that in the day and it was later in the festival when I saw it, towards the back half. Uh, yeah, you know, it could have just been a mindset thing for me, but I was not anticipating it to be so opaque and so slow and so artful, <laughs> I guess is what word I come come up with. Um, but I could definitely see uh, some aspects as to why uh, people were gushing over it. So I don't know. Uh, that's one I'll definitely have to revisit for sure. You're going to talk about Last Black Man in San Francisco. But since you said artful, I just want to remind you that we really need to talk about wounds. Oh, boy. Oh, God. <laughs> Do we have to? Do we have to open up those wounds and talk about oh, wounds? <laughs> should we go ahead and just... Wounds was a source of some disagreement between Matt and myself and Robert. Because... Um, I personally thought Wounds was maybe the funniest film I saw at the festival, and I don't think it was at all on purpose. Our theater was just howling with laughter. I, I, I thought it was unintentionally silly and awful. Yeah, I think it was intended to be serious. <laughs> like the, the dialogue. The worst movie I saw at the festival. <laughs> oh, God. So th- that final shot is just, woo! <laughs> I thought it was intentionally funny. 
I don't believe the director wants Army Hammer pull out a full drawer only holding a knife to be left. <laughs> I didn't think it was funny in some way. <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I, I, I'll play devil's advocate on that. And, and I, I, I do believe that there are portions of that film that were, that were clearly meant to be funny. Uh, you know, maybe if that's the case, then it's a masterful comedy in the vein of Slither, but I wasn't convinced that it was anything other than dead serious. I mean, you had T.S. Eliot quotes to open the film, you know, to book in the film. So, uh... I will say this for Wounds. I'll say this in its favor. It had by far, out of all the Midnight movies I saw, the most effective jump scares. Yes, it did. But they, they kept reusing the same jump scare. Yeah. I actually thought yeah. that, <laughs> the um, same one. The exact same one. I actually thought there were fewer present, but uh, there were two in the lodge that made me just go, "Oh shit!" You know more than these did because you. Well, let, you well let's segue. Spent- let's segue over to the lodge. Actually, uh, over well, to that. Before we oh segue God, over, I just want to say. Before we segue, I just want to say, if anyone listening to this podcast goes and sees wounds, please do not at me or will and just blame it all on Robert and Matt. That's all I'm going to say. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jorge. Uh, Moving over to the lodge, though, really quick. Uh, Will, this was actually a point of uh, disagreement between you and me because um, I was a huge fan of Hereditary last year. Uh, The lodge was being compared a lot to Hereditary this year. And you told me, because you saw it first, that you liked the lodge more than Hereditary, where I like it. A lot less. <laughs> so I think Hereditary loses its way a little bit in its third act, and I thought this keeps it in the road more consistently. No, it doesn't have a singular stunning performance like Tony Collette, but I thought generally the film was simpler, more atmospheric, and just had all of its parts working together to create a more consistent product. I thought it was genuine, generally scarier. You know, Hereditary was so adverse to any kind of jump scare that I honestly thought it worked against it. You know, there was not a single jump scare in Hereditary, and it was frankly not a scary film at all. It was unsettling, but not scary. So I give props to The Lodge for actually deciding a few times I'm going to deliberately startle you. I'm going to use some cinematic trickery. We're going to keep the same kind of thoughtful slow burn intellectual horror, but I'm also going to have some fun with it as I go. Um, And it's just twistier. You know, there are more surprises here. You can kind of figure out where Hereditary is going. I just generally thought it was a better executed horror film and more fun to see. I saw a weirdo horror film from Sweden, Coco D, Coco Day. Did anybody else see that? No. What is that? I've heard some things about that. It is... It, it it was the one screening, like, it, I saw it in a PNI screening, and we started out with maybe 20 people in the audience, and by the end of the movie, it was just me and four other people, and we loved it. <laughs> it's, it's like, uh, um, it's a meditation on a couple that loses a child, and how, like, the magic that their child brought into their life kind of became twisted and evil after the child passed away. And it's represented by this one folk song about a rooster that keeps coming back in all kinds of different orchestrations and permutations. And it goes throughout the piece. And then 
there's like this huge like Groundhog Day section where like you're living the one like one scene again and again and the couple is just finding different ways to be humiliated and murdered by these three creepy characters it's absolutely bizarre and it's it really there are jump scares because they're driving through and there there are a couple jump scares but mostly it is that kind of creepy unsettling you don't really know where it's going there's just random interstitial shadow puppet shows <laughs> like it's it's totally nuts but but i really i really enjoyed it i thought it was in an unironic way i thought it was just quirky and weird and had a lot on its mind but just absolutely nuts but like in terms of uh divisive uh midnight films i want to i want to keep going with the midnight films here for a quick second here um did anybody see the death of dick long yeah we saw it together matt yeah uh, hey listen they all blend to me for, at a certain point i don't know what i even saw i don't this think at this the point. only film that i nodded off in i i had a a moment where uh, you and I talked about this afterwards. The first act, it was really engaging. It yes. has this insane reveal about halfway through. And then it just turns into a different, very serious movie. And it's serious despite having much of its plot predicated about, around something just absolutely absurd. And I definitely was not entirely conscious for all of the, the third act. No, I, I completely agree with that. It definitely loses steam in the second act for sure. Um, another another film that I feel like uh, from the Midnight section that had potential but didn't fully quite realize it was uh, Sweetheart, yeah. actually, with uh, Kiersey Clemens. Anybody want to comment on that one? No, I like Sweetheart. I, th I thought it was a, a, a simple, um, like, castaway horror film. Um <laughs> I thought it really worked. I mean, I didn't think it was like amazing, but I I thought uh, Clemens's performance was really good, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's straightforward and simple, but I liked it. Did you feel like the creature looked a lot like the creature from The Shape of Water, or was it just me? Yeah. Or 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 if not The Shape of Water, maybe the creature from Colossal. I mean, the creature from like Shape of Water looks like a million other creatures. So. <laughs> I think it looks like if the creature from Shape of Water and the creature from Colossal had a beautiful, beautiful baby. <laughs> but hey, I will give the movie this. It was less than 90 minutes long. And you can't ever go wrong with a midnight movie that is like high on thrills and is less than 90 minutes long, you know? So there is that. Uh, anything else in the midnight section jump out at anyone? Uh, before you say it, though, I want to give a shout out. J.D. Dillard is the only director at the festival I saw who not only actually answered all the questions of the Q&A, like usually when you have a horror or sci-fi film, they're like, oh, I, I know the answer to that, but I can't tell you that. It's deliberately ambiguous. He just straight up like, yeah, it's an alien or, you know, things like that. And he also stood outside in the cold for almost an hour, just answering additional questions from fans, which I thought was so admirable because, you know, if you're, a, if you're a filmmaker who's got a film at Sundance, you can, I'm sure, become very pretentious. And he was just more than happy to sit there and chat with people. And, I, you know, I didn't love the film, but I want to give a shout out because what a great guy for doing that. And answer to your other question, Matt, Little Monsters. Yes. yes. My favorite midnight film of the festival by far. Yes. 
Hands down. Oh my God. I was not prepared for how funny, energetic, and just downright fun this movie was going to be. I told the director afterwards, congratulations, you have made a film that's going to stand alongside Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland and is going to become a huge, huge, huge favorite with audiences. I was like, there's just no way that this movie does not find a home with audiences. It's just too goddamn entertaining. <laughs> and I think it really does capture the bond a teacher has with her classroom. Like when you put, when you put your child in a classroom with a teacher, she's in charge of educating the child in charge of that child's emotional self-esteem. She's got EpiPen training. She's got armed intruder training. Like, so I thought that the situation that Miss Caroline's class found themselves in and the way that she managed it was just absolutely wonderful. Did anybody see a midnight film called Greener Grass? Ugh, I did. I had no patience for it. Really? It was just not my brand of humor. Like, I can see, like, because it came from a short, I can see how it can be amusing as a short. But for me, like, ridiculousness for ridiculousness' sake is just exhausting to me. Uh, see, now, I... I thought it was like Pleasantville meets the lobster with the aesthetics of a 1980s television commercial. And I was just so there for the weirdness. I was like, this movie is unique. It is visually unlike anything I've seen before. And I was laughing my ass off through it because I just was along the ride for the absurdity. I think it is for some people, maybe just a little too weird that they just won't be able to connect with it. Probably. I totally get that. If so, um, but man, oh man, did I appreciate a lot about this one? Um, especially because I, you had something like, and I, oh God, I hate saying this term, but you had something like very generic, like the hole in the ground, mm-hmm. which I didn't find that to be like anything special at all. I really liked memory, the or- origins of alien. Oh, oh yeah. It, oh, it was a, it was an odd fit for the midnight section, but I just love the, like this life's work of. Um, Alexandra O'Felipe of taking like uh, plucking a moment out of it out of the zeitgeist and like following it to its like furthest origins I just found it super informative and and um, kind of like a unifying experience like the the world conspired to make the chestburster. I thought it was just really cool. And then my, uh, I think, I think it is my least favorite film of the festival was sadly also in the midnight section. That's Mope. I didn't. See oh, it. I didn't see that. Well, thank God. <laughs> uh, Mope is about uh, two male performers in the in the porn industry who try to make it big. And they are low-level male performers within the porn industry. They're not good-looking. They don't have the you know the pleasing bodies or anything like that. And it's just very cringeworthy, disgusting, repulsive, and just a very gratuitous movie that uh, prompted, I think, the most walkouts of any movie I saw at the festival. I was not a fan at all. Uh, moving on from uh, Midnight then, because I think that pretty much covers everything there. Uh, did anybody see anything in the next category that really jumped out to them? I um, like light through light. What was that the Jim Gaffigan one? Yeah, um, the it's a ghost story, but also just a really sweet kind of like these characters have all of these ways in their lives that they're losing people, the single moms, 
little boy is growing up. Uh, Jim Gaffigan has lost his wife in this real tragic way and is trying to reconnect. And I just found it to be really beautiful. Hmm. I apologize, too. I know I talked about the death of Dick Long before. Apparently, that was in the next category, not Midnight, although it certainly felt like a Midnight film, that's for sure. So was that... that, um, Coco D. Coco Day was... uh, Yeah. I saw Premature, um, which is, you know, pretty good. It's about, you know, this girl that's about to head to college. She lives in Harlem. She she falls in love with a guy that not, not everybody necessarily thinks is for her, but it's a very believable love story and kind of coming of age I saw The Infiltrators which is a documentary slash uh, fiction film about um, detention centers in Broward County immigrant detention centers I didn't love that movie I I didn't think that the uh, excuse me the fictionalized parts worked that well but uh, the the, you know the topics are obviously interesting they have to deal with you know dreamers and what's going on with them and how we're treating them and that was pretty touching but I'm not sure that the style of the film worked for me did anybody tell me about Give Me Liberty? I did not see Give Me Liberty, but I also saw Premature. Um, that was my second to last night at Sundance, I want to say. And I also liked it. It's it's a nice, sweet love story. Um, and I, I thought it was a... Um, I don't know what, what you thought about it, Jorge, but I, I thought the facts <coughs> were the strongest as it was really like going into it was almost like more sensual like the yeah. first thirds was like almost like softcore porn but like, it was Beale, it was also like Beale Street yeah a little bit you know like Beale Street uh, in the sense that it was emotional but with a little more yeah you're right a little more sensual um, mm-hmm. but it, it really it really felt real it, it felt so real I mean it made it, it to me it felt like I was actually watching two people's love life uh, in a very interesting way <laughs> yeah i saw um sister amy which i did not love but it was certainly unique um i it's as if you combine florence foster jenkins and la la land with the wes anderson movie and something really violent like no country for old men um it's a part quirky period comedy musical part throat slitting blood splatter western so interpret that as you will. It's, you know, it does have an amusing critique of kind of male Western mythos and the stereotype of the blowhard male writer, and those are pretty entertaining. It tries to tackle a lot, and it feels like it's bursting at the seams. But it is weird enough. I would probably recommend you see it at some point. And uh, the lead, Anna Margaret Holliman, is fantastic. She... Reminds me a little bit of Rachel Bloom. I mean, I, I think she's got great comedic chops, and I think she could go places. Let me, let me ask you this question, Will. Will the Assassination Nation lover in me really like Sister Amy? Matt, I never saw it. Oh, you kill you me, sir. I, I saw both. Uh, <laughs> I, hmm, maybe? I mean, it's. I, I think um, Sister Amy is a more ambitious film than um assassination nation yeah i mean that that film it's i agree with will like honestly when when it's working oh my god it's like might be like the best of its respective genre but when it's not working you will probably want to walk out of it yeah i would agree with that um i had 
a ticket to the world premiere of The Wolf Hour with Naomi Watts. And funny story, a friend of mine actually shot the film. It was his first film as the uh, cinematographer. And he's sitting in front of me at the world premiere, turns around to me. He tells me, I'm so excited you got a ticket for this, man. I really hope you enjoy the film. And I'm like, yeah, me too. I'm like super excited. And then the movie ends and I just was like, hmm. Yeah, no, 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 no. I was like, oh, crap. I have to tell him I didn't like it. And uh, he comes up to me and he says to me, so he's like, I saw some people walk out. I know that it's probably not good. Just give it to me straight, man. What'd you think? And I was like, you did a good job. It's not your fault. <laughs> and, and, and he was like, he was like, all right, that's fair. That's all well and good. Uh, the movie is uh, a 90 minute film about Naomi Watts in her apartment, uh, afraid to leave it. And certain characters like Emery Cohen, Jennifer L and uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr. Like come into the apartment at different points and stuff. But like Naomi Watts refuses to leave. And it's like this 20-minute short that got stretched to 90 minutes, and it just does not work. Oh, man, it was very frustrating. You know, I almost didn't see Loose because I thought these were the same movie. Oh God! Naomi Watson, Kelvin Harrison Jr. Yeah. Well, we'll get to, we'll get to that one in a in a minute. Did um, sticking with next category for a second here. Uh, one buzzed about film at the festival that uh, I heard a lot of people talking about. I don't know who here saw it. Did anybody here see Adam? I did. Uh, what'd you think of? What'd you think of how that film handled, um, you know, uh, sexual identity and uh, you know, it's kind of chasing Amy esque storyline. It's kind of a bizarre story. This, you know, kid who goes to stay with his sister in New York over the summer and becomes involved with the LGBT community and then s- starts trying, like, gets a crush on a lesbian and then allows her to believe that he is a trans man. Like, I I think it, it rung emotionally true in that, like, a 16-year-old boy will literally do anything to get laid. So that, so I thought it was, and I, and it didn't shy away from the fact that what he did was inexcusable and unforgivable. So, so I would say, like, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was like super sweet. Would I necessarily say it's a, you know, like if you have like a confused or like a a blossoming 12 year old, would you, you show them Adam? Not necessarily, but I I did think it was a really interesting glimpse into um, what it's like to kind of go full bore into something you don't completely understand. And I have to say, too, for as cringeworthy as the first half of the film is, I really did believe that the second half had an emotional maturity to it that I walked away from it not feeling like, oh, this movie handled everything incorrectly. No, I actually walked away thinking, no, this movie had a, had a point to make, and I think that it made it very well by, to your point, uh, Lisa, by not letting that character get off the hook with what he was doing and really making sure that he and the audience knew that what he did was wrong. And he left a better person. Exactly. That's a dynamic character. Uh, One film that I got mixed reactions from, I didn't see it. Did anybody see Paradise Hills with Emma Roberts and uh, Mila uh, Jovovich? No. No. Damn. I was hoping to get some (laughs) word on this one. Uh, I mean, what else is in next year? Sella and the Spades... And I think that's it. Uh, and selling the spades, I didn't see that one either. Yep. All right. 
Well, <laughs> moving on from that then, Docs. Let's talk about Docs at the festival. Yes. I know, everybody wants to talk about Docs. So uh, I'm going to take a step back on this one. I did not see many Docs here. Um, granted, I, you know, a four-hour documentary on Michael Jackson also wouldn't be something I'd be willing to watch usually most days of the week anyway. But, you know, in any event, though, what do you guys think of the docs at this year's fest? Really great. Better than the narrative films this year, just like last year. I mean, some just real stunners. And I think the films that are most going to shake up the world and are that are going to be the biggest award contenders are all in the doc categories. Yeah, I found myself having to like, because I found all of when doing my research before going, I found all of the docs just so intriguing that I kind of had to like force myself to see some narrative films. So I, I actually have seen a large swath of, of the docs. One I found really moving and sad and intimate was one child's nation. Did anybody else see one child nation? I heard that. Didn't Netflix just pick that up? Oh, I don't know. I hope so. It's going to be a tough watch. I, I don't know. There's some imagery in One Child Nation that is very challenging, I thought. I think the one that uh, I heard the most buzz on uh, was American Factory. Oh, yeah. American Factory. That's another um, portrait of China that I also saw. That one was kind of interesting because it was first you get to see America. So, so it's the story of in Dayton, Ohio, a Chinese factory moves into like a, a burned out factory town. So all of these people have been without work for like four, four years. And so we get to see the American worker through the Chinese eyes and then the Chinese worker through American eyes. And there are parts that are funny and sweet. There are also parts that are heartbreaking and shocking. I found it really, really engaging. I think it's going to get subpoenaed because there are so many flagrant uh, labor violations on camera, like yeah. admi admissions to things that are quite literally criminal in the workplace. So I think it's going to end up causing quite a bit of legal drama. And Netflix has picked that one up. So I think that's going to be a very big film. It's it's very powerful and very relevant to where we are as a global culture today. And one of the parts that I found most astounding is when um, the American workers went to observe the Chinese factory and how oh, some yeah. of them didn't really completely comprehend the amount of oppression that had to exist to get that factory working so seamlessly. Uh, like there's like this one point where they had done this really amazing production with singing and dancing and all the people are workers and like the one of the american workers is just in tears so profoundly moved and not seeing like what what that really means it's so bizarre what i want to do uh for this is jorge and robert top two favorite docs from the festival that you have not heard mentioned yet on this recording uh, so, I mean, you've already mentioned them, so I, I've oh. already mentioned... Or I, All right, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. I, I just know that there's so many. I thought maybe there were two more that we hadn't brought up yet. <laughs> I would say um, Moonlight, Sonata, Deafness, and Three uh, Movements was one of my favorite ones. I saw it on that's the last day um, that I was there, and it was one of the most heartbreaking docs I think I've ever seen. Um, 
it's about basically i think the, the director has done a previous doc um on basically her she comes from a deaf family um her parents are deaf and her her um her son's deaf and i think it just skipped her generation and she basically talks about like their how they confront the world but in this one um her son is learning how to play uh moonlight sonata on the piano and you follow him as he's as he's learning this and he's confronting um his deafness and um his cochlear implant um but at some point at the two-thirds mark there's just like this shocking and heartbreaking twist that involves like the grandfather that honestly will literally kill you and it, it basically becomes um a doc that's about deafness that also takes on um a, a disease mm-hmm. yeah that was a beautiful one the other one i heard uh, that i saw was um actually a hail satan oh i missed that one <laughs> everyone i wanted to see it hail satan was very very fun like it was like extremely fun it, it's if you love trolling that is all hail satan is it's literally the satanist who are like trolling evangelicals and trolling like basically the American legal system, which is kind of made for to um um for, for basically for Christianity um and showing like the inequities of the separation of church and state and honestly it really is just a fantastic and just funny documentary. Oh wait a minute, wait a minute. So this isn't like satanic cult like sort of thing. This is more like we need to purge the country of religion. This is a yeah, satanic religion. But like, but like, are they like actually what you would call "quote unquote" evil? No, I mean, I just I think their their main aim. I mean, I they do actually believe in this particular religion. <laughs> they, the they believe in the tenets of the religion, which are um, basically to not be controlled, to have your own voice, to be free, um, and and just to be almost an anarchist in a way. Um, and they just see any other form of organized religion as like hypocrisy. Hmm, sounds lovely. Now, <laughs> so there's a one of you guys saw a cold case Hammerschold. I know we talked yeah. about this before the yeah. recording, but it, it's where I, I didn't see it, but everyone I've talked to says it could literally cause genuine international scandal the more people that see it. It is one of those, it's uh, the filmmaker goes in with this idea of scraping at this old story about the UN secretary general's uh, plane, plane crashing. crash. And he, he thinks he goes in with this idea that he's, he's going to have to put on all of this um, facade and, and he comes in costume and does all of this strange structure because he thinks he's not really going to turn up anything, but then it turns out that he turns up everything. It's like he went fishing for a goldfish and he, he turned up and he brought to shore a whale. Yeah, Lisa, I'm wondering what you thought of the twist because the twist when he when he kind of like uncovers like this larger conspiracy, um I I didn't mm -hmm. like it as much. I thought like it makes the first half tonally like so inconsequential. You know what I mean? I get that that's the point of it, but it's almost like the second half is so weighty that the more inconsequential the first half is, the worse it looks. And it almost kind of like makes almost makes the first half distasteful because he's like he's looking at it from the perspective that he's already researched it and he knows how this will actually conclude. 
Yeah, no, I mean, to me, I found that kind of interesting. So, so I, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, that appealed to me. So mm-hmm. to me, I just thought that like, it's one of those where you don't even really realize what you're watching until you get to that twist. And it's just comes, it just blew my mind. It was really like, and I didn't have another experience in the theater quite like that one. It reminds me of um, Icarus a lot. Another doc that was really trippy and twisty was the Untitled Amazing Jonathan documentary. Did you guys see that? I wish I did not. So the guy who made that Sundance short hit a couple years ago, How to Lose Weight in Four Easy Steps, decides to follow this TV magician and stand-up comic. He was the longest-running Vegas magic act in history, and he was on like every late-night talk show. And basically, the guy learned, the magician learns that he only has a year to live. So this filmmaker decides to follow him through his farewell tour. And then the guy proceeds to live for four more years. And twists start getting revealed, causing the filmmaker essentially to start losing his mind trying to make a good documentary as he starts facing competition to cover this story and starts going to more and more extreme measures to make his film stand out as more and more people compete to try and make the exact same movie. And it's kind of like the prestige with various twists and reveals where, you know, he's, he's following a magician who he can't figure out if the guy is just pranking him the entire time. Hmm. Uh, World cinema. So, any foreign language films that you guys saw at the festival that really impressed you? Monos. Monos. I loved Monos. Let's talk about that Monos. I thought it was absolutely mesmerizing, really interesting exploration of both child warfare and also how hormonal, horny teenagers interact and an exploration of the dynamics of power. And it's so well shot and so well executed. The sound design is so good. It's such an immersive experience. Yes, the characters aren't fully fleshed out, but it's one of those rare films where the the directing and cinematography, are, the style is so good that it compensates for the thin script. It is just mesmerizing to look at, and um, the art house world is going to adore it. I really enjoyed Judy and Punch. It's not foreign language, but it was part of the World Cinema Dramatic Competition because it is from Australia. And it stars Mia Wasikowska and Damon Harriman, who I always just call Dewey because I'm a huge Justified fan. Um, but it, it's kind of a, like a, it's about Punch and Judy, the puppets, but it's kind of um, an exploration on uh, slapstick and how like art imitates life kind of it, and it gets super dark um and i and i really found it to be a fun and like i didn't i didn't go in expecting much and i found it like a really fun and exciting ride hey robert yeah this would be a good time for you to bring up we are little zombies i think i yes i was waiting to see i mean i was waiting to see if anyone would bring up this is not berlin because that's my other favorite one um but I'm going to start talking about We Are Little Zombies. that movie. Because We Are Little Zombies is bonkers. It's amazing. I was literally writing up my review about it like today. It's like Kamu's The Stranger, 
meets um, Japanese game show meets video games meets Vox Lux. It's like insane. <laughs> it's about <laughs> it's about four um, orphan kids who are like apathetic to each one of them lost their respective parents, and they and and, and they meet at a, the funeral of each their respective parents, and they're totally apathetic to mourning, and they run away and they become a band called little zombies and like shoot up to stardom. And it, it's just an amazing, just completely bonkers. Film. I did not see a film at Sundance that was as ambitious as this one. The only one I came close was uh, sister Amy. We are zombies, but alive. We are. Zo- <laughs> it's catchy. <laughs> you know, we have we actually have a bunch of original song Oscar contenders already from Sundance. I don't know that any of them will go anywhere, but between this, Sister Amy, I think the report had an original song, and God, there there was one more. We're we're actually already getting a bunch of song contenders. Uh, uh, Robert, you mentioned also this is not Berlin. Was the other one? Yes, this is not Berlin. As Jorge knows, is effing amazing. Um, it probably is in the top five of Sundance for me. I thought it was the closest to a perfect film that I saw there. Um, and I don't know if Jorge wants to talk more about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's a, it's a film about kind of youth, uh, dissatisfied youth, anxious youth, and uh, rebellious youth that's afraid of being like their parents, and that is at a crossroads of kind of Mexican history in the 80s where the country's looking back, back at violence against students and looking forward to you know the birth of real democracy and these artists that are kind of um you know at the crossroad of this these are young artists i mean you know he's not in the movie but Quaron is a friend of the director when they're all growing up they're all kind of friends and they're all in this group of like uh leftist artists that are just kind of figuring out their sexuality and their political views and the movie does a good job of depicting all of this in a very uh, a sincere in your face kind of way and so it's and it continues to be relevant today because these are struggles that reinvent themselves with the new with new generations you know the world over where younger people are always thinking of okay well I, we want to be different from our parents we want to be better uh, how can we do that and, and we want to rebel against them so it's a biographical but also time you know timeless story uh, and uh, it kind of fits very well into the broader picture of world cinema and specifically Mexican cinema that we've seen coming, you know, out in the last few years or so, both as an individual film, but also, you know, on this bigger collage, I think it's really worth seeing. And it's definitely in my top five of the festival as well. Wow. Uh, I want to use this to bridge a gap right now because this film is not in the foreign language uh, category at Sundance. It is actually part of the dramatic competition category, and it will be a good way for us to move over to that section here. Um, it is a 24s to Farewell, starring Aquafina. Oh, so good. And it's a film that is, I would say, what, 95% in uh, Mandarin? Let me tell you something. Crazy Rich Asians, I thought, this year did an awesome job as far as getting Asian representation out there into the marketplace in a studio, big budget, entertaining sort of way. And it's going to, I definitely think, be a uh, film that I am going to have a very close eye on 
because it is more catered towards the indie art house crowd. But if this film does very well and gets something like, say, I don't know, like $40 million or something like that, uh, that'll be like the true test to see if um, Asian representation in cinema, if like the, if the if that demographic is really turning out to um, support like that um, on to support that representation on screen in a major way. But I will say this though for this movie, it earns everything that it sets out to do as far as balancing its comedy and its drama um the performances by the ensemble the delicate nature of the writing and the just there's so many little aspects of it the way it's shot the way it's scored um it's very deeply personal and it's felt so well that i mean i I, I have to say, like, you know, it's like I think back to films I've seen before that, you know, really broke my heart, but also made me laugh. And the films that did that the best were films like Sideways, Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind. And I feel like The Farewell is up there as far as how well it just tapped into those emotions for me. It felt extremely intimate, but also very entertaining at the same time. I'm so brokenhearted that I missed this film because it was one of my most anticipated and it was one of those where I just had to prioritize. Well, this is definitely, this movie is definitely going to come out. And so I decided to prioritize other things that might not necessarily come out. But I love the fact that the director and writer Lulu Wang, like this exact thing happened to her in her life. And, mm-hmm. and she did it as a story on this American life, which which I had heard and and has stuck with me over the years. So I'm excited to see this movie. I'm sad I didn't see it at Sundance. It's so good. I mean, Will, let me ask you a question. Would that be this would be an adapted screenplay? No, because I guess there's no previous published work, I guess, right? But no, wouldn't I think the story be? Wouldn't the radio story be? Because it's like uh, a proper piece. Because I'm telling you, I think this film has a very good chance to maybe be a screenplay contender. Yeah, I was thinking so too. It, it feels like it. Yeah. I, I mean, and Aquafina gives, I think, what is by far the best performance of her career so far. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And uh, the, who plays the grandmother in it? Uh, it? No. who? I God, I can't remember who plays the grandmother. I didn't recognize her from any previous films, but she's excellent, and she will probably remain in my personal supporting actress lineup. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I also, can I make a quick shout out? Can I make a quick shout out, though, in the world cinema um, competition before we move on to the regular one um there's a couple more there one's called divine love and it's about brazil in 2027 it's kind of funky and you know also kind of reflects the anxieties of the times in brazil and where they're going and it has these very weird surreal themes about motherhood and it's kind of um you know there's a lot of neon coloring and uh it's it's really interesting in funky uh so i I recommend it Uh, i saw a movie called the last tree about a british boy of nigerian heritage growing up in in, like suburban london that's also very good uh and it has to do with identity and it's you know themes that are familiar to american audiences but also slightly different because they have to do with immigrants in other countries so it's it's a it's a you know you know familiar but different perspective so that's something else i'd recommend from the world dramatic competition all right now that you said now that you said that now you get to go first with the U.S. dramatic competition. So, take us away with that as well. Me? Oh, okay. Um, ooh, I don't know which ones are premieres or spotlight and which are U.S. dramatic competition, but I really liked uh, the report and I really liked uh, Loose. Uh, so, 
are those U.S. Dramatic competition? Well, one yes. is one is one is premiere. One is U.S. Dramatic. I guess we'll lump them uh, together at this point. A show of hands, whose favorite film at the festival was Loose? Oh me. Oh, hands down, mine. Yeah, mine too. By far. <laughs> I. I cannot like I, I'm sorry like anything else I say after this is I'm just not going to be as enthusiastic uh, but <laughs> loose knocked me on my ass and I walked out of that cinema as high as a kite I was high-fiving oh, random I'm strangers shaking. I was like I was texting will just like oh my god and like I think I texted Jorge the same thing I was like wow and just like going absolutely nuts over this movie um, best screenplay Best ensemble, uh, just overall the best movie I saw at the festival. That film completely blew me away. And it's also, too, I mean, I don't want to say this. I know I know it's early, you know, Oscars, you know, next year and everything like that. But, hey, Octavia Spencer, she, she could win, she could win know, for like, this. Yeah. She's so different from anything she's ever done before in this. She's so threatening in it. You know, and she's usually such a likable presence. This was a a very meaty, very atypical role for her. And, you know, Kelvin Harrison Jr. is a hell of a breakthrough here. He had already impressed me in things like It Comes at Night and Monster, but this is next level stuff here. He is so good. Yeah. Yeah, Luz, um, I think that was the one that I saw. And I I told you, uh, Matt and, and Jorge, about that. Like, I was on cloud nine after that film. Like, I came out of that premiere and I was like, that is the best film of Sundance right there. Um, and I do think that is Octavia Spencer's best performance of her career. Like, Absolutely. Like, yeah. I, Isn't that I, amazing I though? Like, she's had so many, but I agree. I agree with that. It's, I really think so too. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that performance, it, I know it's early, but I do believe that performance is going to hold up to, to the Oscars. Especially considering how much they love her, they they they've nominated yeah, her so much her lately. For, they'll nominate for her anything. I mean, if you've ever met her, which I've had the luck of meeting her a couple of times, she's the nicest person, and there's a lot of nice people there. But she's genuinely very nice. She'll hug you every time. So they're definitely going to nominate her. I think, and it's shocking what I'm about to say. I think in some ways, but perhaps not. I mean, a lot of the characters that she plays in a lot of her prior roles are a little bit cliched. Um, you know, they're a little bit repetitive and. This is the one that really has substance, that really has its right. own kind of arc. You know, you you feel for her not because of stereotypical reasons, but because you you know about her family and her motivations. And and she has two or three scenes where she's really knocking out of the park. I mean, this is definitely her best character and her best performance. Last Black Man in San Francisco. That's another film. When it is working, oh my God, that is one of the best things I've ever seen. Like the first five minutes how it just melds um, operatic, you know, um, op- operatic music with like these long tracking shots of like these two characters, like skateboarding through San Francisco. And it's just amazing. The film is self-indulgent. It does like dawdle like on a few things. Like I think like the play within the play um, segment is a little bit much um, and it needs a heavier hand with its edit, but um, when that film is working, it's just fantastic. I went up to Joe Talbot after it was over, and I said to him, Sir, congratulations. I really need to take a picture with you so that in 25 years' time, when you're referred to as one of the best living directors today, I can say I got this picture now. Matt, how would you congratulate? 
<laughs> I, I just like I, I like I really genuinely felt like I had seen the debut of somebody who is going to be like a huge mainstay with us because the, the the level of originality craftsman and craftsmanship in this movie with the music the cinematography the edited montages the the performances like I I just I was completely completely won over by this movie I thought it was a revelation honestly it reminded me so much of blind spot uh blind spotting last year actually in terms of you know, it's a it's a pairing of two actors who uh, are relatively unknown to a lot of us, um, and it definitely introduces a new creative voice into the world of independent cinema. And it's also very much a film that's about its setting and how much that setting influences the story and what uh, the characters are going through. I think it's a really special film. I, I can't wait for audiences to check it out. Although, um, I do have to say, I deep down, I kind of do worry about its commercial prospects a little bit. Especially like with the title being like that long like that, um, which speaking of long titles, <sighs> extremely wicked, shockingly vile and evil. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Uh, just sold to uh, Netflix, actually. Surprise, surprise. Uh, who wants to talk about Zac Efron as Ted Bundy? I like the fact that this film didn't try to get into the mind of Ted Bundy, but more try to draw a portrait of, of his longtime girlfriend, fiance. And it was really more about how he infiltrated her life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like the fact that the film did not go to gratuitous route of showing the killings. For the most part. Like, with the exception of one, right? Yeah. Um, I was really, really afraid that the film was going to be um, overly brutal and violent and kind of just push audiences away. But instead, it was actually a very... It was actually, I thought, a very well-balanced character study that featured... Hold on, let me just check my... Let me just check around, make sure nobody's watching... I think it was Zac Efron's best performance to date. What? Yeah, but again, Over a high not, school musical? You know, you know, Matt, we keep saying it's so-and-so's best performance to date, and at a certain point it doesn't really mean much when most of their performances are not stellar. But I mean, like, I, I mean, Will, you have to agree that especially... It's a very good it, But especially with what we've seen happen this year in terms of which performances get nominated... The fact that this is going to have the Netflix machine behind it, the fact that it's getting a fall release date, can't you see a world where they decide we want to nominate Pretty Boy Zac Efron for Best Actor? Sure. I think it's pretty brilliant casting. I thought he did a great job of capturing that kind of fr- frenetic charisma, in particularly in the interview scenes, the recreated scenes, um, and also, you know, the suave charmer side. And I also thought Lily Collins as the um, put upon spouse, like she gave a really She's very wonderful good. performance. Yeah. Matt, the, the, I mean the best, I was just to say quickly, the best actor race has been weak in the last few years. If it's weak, maybe, but otherwise I would say 0.0% chance. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. All right. That's fair. Um, Robert, you mentioned earlier the report uh, with Adam Driver and in what I also once again I'm going to say the term again I think a best performance to date personally uh, 
what, what, what do we think of the report here? Because I've been hearing a lot of mixed uh, reception on this film. Uh, some saying it's like the new Spotlight, Zero Dark Thirty. Others saying that it's just another standard procedural you know, drama. What, what do you think? Um, yeah, well, actually, to go back to the, 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 the teen heartthrob pretty boy who might be nominated for an Oscar this year, my um, recommendation would be Robert Pattinson because he's got a few killers, it looks like, coming out this year. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I would say, I mean, the report was the last film I saw at Sundance before I stole my luggage away and got back on a plane. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I, I, it, my Sundance ended on a high note. Um, I do think it is one of, it probably is Adam Driver's best performance next to Patterson. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I, I like the procedural aspects of it. I think it does what Vice didn't do. It tells us a story that we didn't know. It doesn't feel like a Wikipedia entry. Um, and I, I, I um, Driver, the way that he just delivers the lines. I mean, it's, it's a lot of people have talked about this, but it's, his lines are so informational heavy. And that could be what might be pushing some critics away or some viewers away but i think he delivers the information in such a nice like stream of consciousness easy flow um i i really did love it and i i oh, oh and um God, i'm blanking on her name right now who plays diane feinstein annette um, benning annette benning. Yes, annette benning yes annette benning's also fantastic in that movie really gets feinstein's like mannerisms and stuff um yeah i, I mean i i thought the report was one of the five best movies at sundance Wow. I bet uh, Annette Benning could get Best Supporting Actress for this. Yeah, but people Especially- talking about winning, I can't possibly see that. No. A film that uh, drew some comparisons to the report at the uh, festival to some degree uh, was another premiere for Official Secrets, uh, starring Kieran Knightley, also with Matt Smith, Ray Fiennes, and a few others as well. Who had a chance to catch this one? I saw that. So it's did I. Fine. <laughs> You, you know, like, I thought it was less engaging than the report. It just, it, it is very, very dry and slow. Kira Knightley's very good. It's just, you know, if there is a spectrum of procedural film engagement, they're always going to be a little bit dry. And this is definitely um, not as riveting as some in the genre. <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, like, it's if the report in mine is my mind is like a seven point five. This is a six point five. I wouldn't necessarily agree with it being dry. I do agree with it being a less good movie than the report. I think they it gets a little bit caught up in all of the like nitty gritty of this like one memo and all of the the fallout that it had. There was definitely like the middle. I like I always found it engaging. Um, but and I like the fact that it was kind of a who's who of British actors. I found that pretty fun. But I, I did oh, I love those ensemble more. pieces. Yeah. Yeah, it, but like you compare it to Gavin Hood's previous thriller, Eye in the Sky, which is just riveting and really goes in depth into moral ambiguity. Whereas this pretty clearly has it in its mind who is in the right and it it doesn't delve into the the grubby, you know, moral questions that you might have to make. It knows who did the right thing and just kind of wants to paint it out for you. But it kept me in suspense, though, until the end, as far as the um, 
you know, what was going to be like her fate. You know what I mean? Oh, I I knew that I knew who she was. I knew how that ended up. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't know. So moving over to like some crowd pleasers here for a second, though. Some movies that put some smiles on our faces for a change because, you know, we need that every once in a while in our lives. Um, Robert and I, <laughs> funny story, uh, Robert and I sat in the exact same row in the exact same seats at the exact same venue uh, for two crowd pleasers that I don't even know if it was by accident that that happened, Robert, or what the deal was, but we both walked out of both of these screenings looking at each other like, I feel good. Do you feel good? I feel good. <laughs> and so uh, those two films were Troop Zero and uh, Blinded by the Light. Oh, yeah. yeah, those are both very fun. Blinded by the Light, especially because it's so touching at the end, you know, like it's not just funny. It really puts some tears in your eyes with its climax. The I don't know the actor's name, but the actor that plays his father in that uh, does a really, really great job of earning uh, those tears at the end. Like you said there, Will, I mean... I, I have to say, I was really, really impressed by Blinded by the Light by the end of it, because in the beginning, I was like, oof, like, it just got off to a rocky start for me with the iMovie-like titles and the uh, um, the choppy editing, and then, like, some of the musical sequences I thought felt a little forced, but, man, if you you talk about a movie that won me over, uh, that film worked its ass off to win me over, and by the end, I, I, I converted. I was, like, all about it, and I wanted to listen to Bruce Springsteen immediately as soon as it was over. <laughs> cool Vinder Gear is the actor who played his... Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah, I've seen Bend it like Beckham, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I... I you, you know me, I love that film, too, Blinded by the Light, um, and... Honestly, Blinded by the Light was probably the most flawed film that I ended up liking in the end. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because there's some like really like, weak points. It's pretty messy technically. Um, I'm a, I'm actually going to be really really curious to see how they plan to make that investment back, as far as for how much New Line paid for it because. 15 million it's crazy they're gonna need bruce himself to do promotion for it in order to make the money back that's the only way i could see it happening i mean i think he will promote it but uh, man there were a couple sales at this fest that you know i think people got just caught up in the mountain air and the trying to one-up each other once amazon started spending money <laughs> uh, although can i use this as a transition for one that i think was a very sound investment surely i think i know what you're gonna say Brittany runs the marathon is yes yeah that it like won that. audience it's a huge crowd pleaser it's very it, like the dialogue is hysterical uh I, I it's very quotable it also touches you by the end jillian bell proves that she's an amazing talent uh, it, it's such a love letter to running and it, you know, it handles the whole message of be healthy, but I'm also not going to body shame you deftly. Like it is such an entertaining film. And I do think it'll be, um, a, a modest box office hit. And I think will make Amazon back their money and make Jillian Bell a star. Absolutely. I thought that movie was going to be something different. I mean, I think if, um, if the trailer plays it right, it'll convey that message. I thought it was just going to be more a straight up, like, silly uh, comedy about a girl that was out of shape trying to run a marathon. But it was more of a chicken soup for the soul slash do-it-yourself, feel-good book kind of thing, which I was not expecting. But it was very, very funny. I, I wrote, uh, as soon as I got out of the theater, it made me want to stand up, clap, and cheer. 
Uh, I and not even like when the end credits came on. Like, I mean, for her as a character, I had such a great deal of empathy for that character that I was so, so heavily invested in her journey and what she had been going through. Uh, I I hope for nothing but the best for this movie because I really, really, really loved it. Um, speaking of Amazon spending money late night, uh, Mindy Kaling's uh, screenplay starring her and Emma Thompson, I said this and i know that some people uh also made this comparison and i know that there are some people who hate that this comparison was made but i think it's actually factual uh this to me is the eighth grade the big sick of this year's festival where it's like you just know as you're watching it that this movie is going to be a crowd-pleasing uh movie that's probably got a very very good chance of being a box office success to a certain degree, because obviously we know eighth grade wasn't like the biggest hit in the world, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, it's more like the Devil Wears Prada, right? <clears throat> Bigger names, and uh, I don't know about the distribution, but you know, it's not gonna be the same. But it's gonna, it should make some money. It's pretty good. I, I thought it was, I thought it was very, very entertaining. And listen, I, I'm at a point in my uh, life now where anything starring uh, Paul Walter Hauser immediately gets my interest up because I think that character actor is just hysterical. I met him <laughs> like at a party. He's so every nice. single movie, though, right? Pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, keeping in with the uh, category here for a minute, uh, we did mention Britney Runs a Marathon. We mentioned uh, Blinded by the Light, um, Late Night. Uh, did anybody see, this is where I'm going to ask now, did anybody see uh, Miss Purple? Yes. yes. I did. Incredible. Loved it. Same. So, like the best cinematography at the fest, in my opinion. Stunningly shot and on a shoestring budget. And I don't think it's been picked up either, right? I don't think so. Not that I heard. Which is so sad, because I, I do think it's one of the best films at this festival. I agree with Will, and the cinematography is so great. Um, Tiffany Chu is an actress that um, I was lucky enough to interview while I was at Sundance, and I really do believe, I mean, I, if this film can get some distribution, I do think she's going to turn some heads, and we might hear a lot, lot more from her. Um, and Sean's direction, this entire film, is just fantastic. I agree. The fact that it it covers some of the subjects that it covers and still manages to be uplifting is a total triumph. Mm -hmm. Did anybody happen to catch, because I missed this one, and it won a couple of awards, uh, Cher? No. No. No, I mean, like, I had heard it was a bit of a disappointment, which is why I was surprised it won awards. And, you know, like, A24 pawned it off to HBO, too. So... Uh, so I have to say Honey Boy uh, was a film that featured, in my opinion, Shia LaBeouf's best performance of his career. Uh, what did everyone else think of that one? Really intimate. It's like it's like a, the center chapter of a really engaging book. Like yeah, it, it just kind like of stops. Film. Yeah, it's it's kind of stops at the end. But I, that didn't bother me. I found that really fascinating. And, you know, it is a, a, a self-portrait of sorts. And. The story is not over. You know, they, they said that he wrote it while he was in rehab, and it definitely is a therapeutic movie that I think he wrote for himself. As opposed for us, yeah. Yeah. And I think that really comes across. I, I admire it more than I liked it. There's some really beautiful cinematography in, in Honey Boy as well. Um, I, I, I loved it, uh, Honey Boy. I I was completely down for all the, the, the set. The only thing I think could have been done differently is I don't think Hedges's um, arc 
need to be in the film as much as it is. Honestly, I would have no. been fine with Hedges at the beginning and then at the end. And I'd been fine with that. That being said, I really liked his performance. I thought he really mm-hmm. manages to capture some of Shia's more weird mannerisms and stuff. Like, I didn't think I was going to buy him as Shia LaBeouf, and I did. Yeah, like, he doesn't look anything like him, but he captured the spirit of him, if that makes sense. Um, Another film that I really, really loved, um, I really loved this, and this has not been picked up for distribution yet. I really, genuinely love Two of the Stars. I love that movie. That's one of my favorite ones. Jorge, I'll I'll let you take this one. Yeah. There's two things. I mean, talk about cinematography, right? Like we've been discussing that. I think that that's a serious cinematography contender if it gets picked up. And then, you know, it's a movie by women about women and not necessarily only for women, but it really takes a different angle to the story of how, how women can support themselves in the face of different types of aggressions and oppression from men, from society, from other women and from each other and dealing with different types of problems as you're growing Growing up, you know, the typical ones that you're used to, such as um, <clears throat> bullying or abusive parents, but also sexuality issues. I mean, it's just a very complete, uh, in one simple story about two girls in a small town in Oklahoma, a very complete analysis of different emotional and real ways in which women can be there for each other and, and have been there for each other. It's so beautiful. It's so sincere. It's so touching. I, it, I just I just really loved it. And uh one of one film, like you said, a, a film by women for women. Uh, one film that was uh, by guys for guys uh, that actually surprised me because I was expecting it to be a train wreck. Uh, was big time adolescence. It was a train wreck. Oh, you thought so? I didn't think so. It's the same movie as mid nineties. You know, it's like that. See, that's the thing. Like, look, it's not fair to judge. I don't think from different perspectives. But the two the stars movie, I haven't seen many of. A big time adolescence. It's not fair to say it's a train wreck. It's a, a very good movie. It's funny, but it's all, but I thought what set this one apart though was Pete Davidson's performance. I thought was actually really good. Sure, but the themes and the story and everything else, I, we've seen it so many times that sometimes I'm just like, am I really sitting through this again? Like, am I really sitting through this again? Mm. The performance, yes. Okay, yeah, I, I I can understand that perspective. I get that. Uh, and then I guess um, I'll, I'll finish it off with this film. But if you guys have any others you want to just mention really quick at the end, um, the Grand Jury Prize winner was Clemency. Uh, starring Alfred yes. Woodward and uh, Aldous Hodge. And that movie featured uh, those two performances, that, which I thought were absolutely staggering. I'm not sure if I thought the movie itself was all that special, but those two performances I really thought were. I mean, it won the overall jury prize, so it's got to be pretty good. I mean, I mean, it is pretty good. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I found this film extraordinarily special. It was... My favorite of the fest. I thought wow. it was another film that it managed to make the uh, c- the cinematography managed to present prison in a more dynamic way than I've I've seen before. Um, uh, obviously, the performances are amazing, but like to me, I think this is um, the triumph of the writer director Chinoye Chikulu. I think that the fact that this is um, her first film and it is so profoundly considered and um, she, like, I, I just found it to be an extremely sophisticated and heartbreaking script. And I thought it was beautifully shot. And 
Um, I this is one of the few because because I was mostly doing P and I's, so I didn't get a lot of like director Q and A's. But um, after the film, she talked about and I and I had already decided that this was my favorite film of the festival. But the way that she researched this film, like literally interviewing wardens, interviewing death row inmates, starting to teach classes in a women's prison for filmmaking, she really made herself part of the 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 fabric of the society that is prison, and she presented that. And then she also, uh, like. Alfre Woodard was connected to the film for a very long time. And she also went into the prisons and, um, you know, interviewed um, wardens and interviewed and spoke to inmates. And I think that that um, depth of research is something that you don't get to see a lot in um, independent film just because of time constraints and money constraints. But the fact that, that this is a subject that the director is obviously deeply passionate about and just i to me i just think that especially this is a subject that's at like a sore on the american face like it's just like the fact that we still have um we execute our citizens is just horrible and and i think that she presented it in a very dynamic not preachy way i just thought it was awesome all right, uh, Robert. Before you give your uh, your sign off here, uh, we're pretty much at the end. I want you to name one film that was not brought up at all during this entire discussion that you want the uh, uh, listeners out there to keep an eye out for, and that you could give uh, everybody where they could find you on the internet. Okay, I'm going to cheat and say two films. Um, <laughs> one is Gaza, um, which is a documentary about the Gaza Strip, which I absolutely like loved i thought it was one of the best documentaries there but also i would say hala um which was in the dramatic competition and i just i really loved it i think it's one of the best coming of age films um of well, probably the last year or so i mean i think that was as close as we were going to get to kind of um an eighth grade type film um or ladybird type film so yeah, I mean, I would I would say that one. And in terms of where you can find me on Twitter, um, at 812filmreviews. All right, Lisa, one film, and where can they find you on the internet? Um, the film I'm going to mention is Paddleton, um, directed by Alex Lehman, um, written by Alex Lehman and Mark Duplass. It's a really intimate and beautiful um, story about uh, the power of platonic love and how for some people platonic love really is their true love. I thought it was really beautiful. And you can find me at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd. And um, you can hear me on the In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast and writing at um, aftermoviediner.com. All right, Jorge, same to you. Uh, film I Am Mother, the futuristic dystopian movie about robots and humans, which is really... Damn it, I was going to say really that. Quirk. Sorry, I thought Robert <laughs> was going to steal that from me. I was very nervous. Um, but, you know, it's a movie that people need to see so we can all discuss it. And on the internet, you can find me on Twitter at jdonburnham. And Will, I'm sure you have a doc or something that we have not brought up yet. Where can they find you, sir, on the internet? Yeah, I was gonna, I really want to emphasize, I also second I Am Mother. I think that's a delightful little sci-fi romp. 
and I think it's going to have a, a good audience, especially on VOD or something. Just say so, Velvet Buzzsaw. No, <laughs> no. no. I'm going to say we, we, we count slam dance movies here, especially because that's where Soderbergh's premiered and we've had some recent acquisitions. So there's a film called The Vast of Night, which has some of the most impressive long takes I've ever seen. You know, some like eight to 12 minute long takes that evoke uh children of men just some really impressive in-camera work and uh got a strong review in the hollywood reporter so i think it might show up somewhere at some point with a distributor and worth seeing if you get the chance and you have movies all right and uh my film is uh jennifer kent's the nightingale which is by far the most brutal movie i have seen at Sundance and looking back at Sundance's history might be the most brutal film that's ever played at Sundance. Um, it is a really, really tough set. Maybe indeed a little bit of a trim. Uh, it does run a little long, but the performances, the cinematography, the direction from Kent, uh, this is a different kind of horror film, uh, not like the Babadook at all. Um, and it is something that prompted walkouts. Even uh, medical uh, personnel were needed for one audience member, who's okay, by the way, uh, during one of the screenings at Sundance. And uh, when you see the film, you'll certainly know why. And it certainly will not be for everyone, but I definitely admire Jennifer Kent's uh, bravery and uh, resolve with telling uh, such a story. It's really quite a memorable experience. You can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our Sundance 2019 recap here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Thank you to all of you for joining us here today. And for everyone listening, you all know where you can find us on the internet. So listen, subscribe, and retweet, and favorite, and share, and like. We really appreciate any support you can give us all. We will see you all next time. Next time.